welcome to the 347th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I talk with Jeffrey Hughes and Tridibesh Day about legal regimes under pandemic conditions, with special attention today to Jordan and also to India. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch live on Twitter at the handle at US of Disaster. Today is a special COVID calls at 5.30 p.m. Korea time. You can also hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 29th, 2021, there are 4,765,504 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, The Doctor Cried With Us. Other of first Fayette student to die of COVID tells story. This was written by Valerie Honeycutt Spears and appeared in the Lexington, Kentucky Herald Leader, September 24, 2021. 15-year-old Christopher C.J. Gordon Jr. always put other people first, and you rarely saw him not smiling, his mother, Renita Wright Gordon, said Thursday night, September 23rd. I've never seen my baby be upset about anything, Gordon said. He was loving and caring. C.J. died at 5.56 a.m. Thursday morning in the intensive care unit of the University of Kentucky Healthcare's Kentucky Children's Hospital where an ambulance took him on September 12th, his mother told the Herald Leader. He was the first student in Fayette County, Kentucky public schools who died of COVID-19. University of Kentucky pediatricians took care of my baby. The doctor cried with us today. He was heartbroken, Gordon said. She said the medical staff caught a glimpse of her son's personality before he was sedated and were immediately taken with him. They didn't give up. They did everything. They had plan A, plan B, and plan C, Gordon said. Staff at the Learning Center, the school district program where CJ attended, described him as a smart, sweet kid who made the classroom a better place. As of Monday of this week, at least 1,470 Fayette students have tested positive with COVID in the latest surge of cases this school year with the Republican-led General Assembly giving school officials much less leeway to close school buildings to curb the virus. The Herald Leader reported that the number of coronavirus patients filling intensive care unit beds and breathing on ventilators in Kentucky has yet to plateau. Only 130 adult ICU beds were open across Kentucky on Thursday of last week. A total of 2,223 people are hospitalized with COVID-19. 625 are in an ICU and 424 are on a ventilator in the state. 21 children are hospitalized with the virus, 8 are in an ICU and 5 are on a ventilator. As Gordon said, she and her son both began to show signs of COVID around September 1st. She doesn't know who got it first or where they got it, only that she had been as careful as possible and they always wore masks. Other than being overweight, CJ hadn't been diagnosed with a specific pre-existing condition. They quarantined at home together. CJ was winded when he walked down the stairs, though he otherwise fared well at first. Gordon said the coronavirus left her exhausted, but it was her son's condition that rapidly declined on September 12th. She called an ambulance when he fell back slowly on her bed and had difficulty talking. CJ was sedated and placed on a ventilator soon after arriving at the hospital. 
Gordon was still in quarantine, so at first, CJ's father went to the hospital to be with him. Doctors told her he was a very sick boy with a low oxygen level. When Gordon recovered from COVID, she stayed by his side at the hospital. CJ appeared to improve at times in the last 10 days, but he never truly rallied. Gordon said she did not force him to get the COVID vaccine because he wasn't ready to take it, and it was new to everybody. Gordon said she will get vaccinated now. Gordon said her son, a sophomore, loved University of Kentucky football and basketball and was especially a fan of UK basketball coach John Calipari. CJ played football for local city teams for several years. He was the baby of the family, doted on by his older siblings. He loved his video games and he wanted to build his own computer. People were beginning to say that one day he would make money from his computer school, computer skills. At school, he was building a reputation as a thoughtful hard worker with a bright future. I had, Gordon said, an amazing child. I know he's with God. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. This is one I've really been looking forward to, and we've had to reschedule it once. I'm really glad that my guests have been patient with me, and let me introduce you to them. Trudy Day is a final-year PhD candidate in the Anthropology of Science and Technology at the University of Exeter. His broader research themes involve plastics, process, technologies of plastic waste management, and infrastructures. His thesis due for submission this year is a careful ethnographic study of the different processes of plastic and practical networks, including informal recycling and a combustion-based large-scale national infrastructure of solid waste management being developed in India. Conceptually, it examines mutability as a tool to study plastics' complex ubiquity. The second guest is Jeffrey Hughes. Jeffrey Hughes is a lecturer in anthropology at the University of Exeter and associate editor of the Journal of Legal Anthropology. His work explores how people in the contemporary Middle East are responding to new technologies for large-scale population management. He's written a number of articles on various social engineering projects in Jordan. His new book is entitled Kinship, Islam, and the Politics of Marriage in Jordan, Affection, and Mercy. Trudebesh Day and Jeffrey Hughes, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls. Oh, thank you for having us. I'd like to start the way I generally do, just to find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation looks like there. Trudy Besh, let me start with you on that question. Um, so I was resident in Exeter for, well, until the last week, and I just reached Calcutta. Um, in India, the number of cases has subsided in comparison to where it was uh, a few months earlier, say when the second, uh, second wave had peaked back in April and we were having about uh, 0.4 million case COVID cases every day. Now it's much lower. We have about 25 to 30,000 cases every day, but when distributed over a large country, of course it's uneven distribution, but in terms of every day, we do not perceive the same uh, quantum of threat as people used to earlier. So when I go out for my evening walks every day, I find a lot of people on the streets. Uh, most of them are wearing masks, some under their nose, some under their chin. Uh, but yeah, I mean, things look uh, slowly getting back to normal. Uh, speaking of the economy, it's still kind of in bad shape, but things should pick up. How about you, Jeff? All right. Muted myself there for a second. Sorry about that. I just want one quick follow-up to you, Trudy Bish. What about the vaccination situation there? Uh, so I think they got about 86 crore, which is... I think, which is roughly um, 80 million. Uh, yeah, so they got 86 crore vaccinations done, at least the first dose. Of course, for a big country, it's still uh, slow in, like, in terms of the uh, percentage vaccinations. Uh, we got a population of 140 
crores. So, and 86 have got their first doses. So nearly about 60% over there. Uh, the process is uneven, but it's the rate has picked up. Hmm. I mean, I think yesterday they administered some 10 million doses of vaccine. So it's hmm. picking up, it's picking up. Hmm. So okay. Well, considering where things were even just 60 days ago, this is a very different report um, from what we were hearing. So uh, still grim statistics, but a different trajectory. Uh, thank you for that introduction. Jeffrey, same question to you. How's it looking there? And where are you and how's it looking? Uh, yeah, so I'm in a, I'm in a relatively uh, rural area. I guess it's, I live in a town, a college town, actually. Uh, and so we've just gone back to school. Um, the case rate has not been, you know, sort of spiking in the same way it had previous times when they relaxed the restrictions. It's been much uh, more of a gradual upswing. Uh, and then since classes started back up, there's been a notable sort of uptick uh, as well. Um, this is obvious, I think, largely due to the uh, vaccination rollout, which has been uh, relatively successful in the UK. So I think that we've, um, we're kind of creeping up now, I think, towards 70%. Uh, vaccination, um, and that's basically not allowing uh, young people to get the vaccine. So it's a much higher uh, rate of vaccination when you basically uh, factor out uh, those people. Um, so at this point, um, you know, what it seems like is that most people have probably either been vaccinated or they've already had it some other way, especially if they're younger or, um, you know, they were in school or, or sort of things like that. Um, and so, um, what we're seeing is is sort of very little in the way of, of mask wearing. Um, I'm definitely, you know, sort of one of the few people wearing a mask, I guess, when I teach. Um, they are supposed to be doing it, but obviously I can't make them. Uh, and about, uh, based on my email inbox anyway, about, you know, sort of 5 to 10% of them are self-isolating uh, with COVID on any given day. Um, but they don't seem to really, you know, sort of take that very seriously. So I just keep wearing my N95 and getting a little bit of a, you know, a, cardio respiratory workout, you know, sort of talking for two hours, but, um, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, it's definitely uh, nowhere near as grim uh, as it was uh, sort of in the last couple of waves that we've had. And that uh, vaccination uh, availability, so it's universally available in the UK at this point from age 13 up, or is it 18 up, or do you know? I believe the, the cutoff at this point is 15 or it might be okay. 16 um, okay. but it is it is not uh, they're not allowing uh, even sort I mean it's definitely higher than it is in the US um, and I know they're thinking about lowering it even more in the US but um, and also of course I mean the sort of the buy-in from the public has been a lot higher I think notably the Murdoch press in uh, the UK has been very pro-vaccine compared to their coverage in the US so it's interesting to see the same media conglomerate taking different editorial lines uh, in different countries like that. Um, and I, we could be cynical and, and wonder if it has to do with the fact that there's a conservative government uh, in power in the UK uh, and a more liberal government in uh, the US. Uh, but, you know, who knows? Always, right? always staking out that opposition uh, position in order to, to sell the news. I, that's the first time I've heard someone frame it that way, Jeff. So now you you got to follow up with an essay on just that provocation because I think it's actually quite interesting the ways that in Fox News, the United States has framed not only the pandemic, but more particularly in the last, let's say, four months, vaccination, which has moved to the, uh, maybe it's not right at the center, but it's almost at the center of Republican politics in many states across the United States. And of course, it's stoked by, uh, by Fox Corp. So, um, Good observation there, for sure. Uh, thanks for that introduction. Let me stay with you for a second, Jeff. I've been asking guests if they wouldn't mind sharing a memory of the pandemic. It's the impossible task uh, in some ways to, to bring it down to one memory, but I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing something. Yeah, I was really struggling, uh, and I couldn't actually make up my mind which COVID anecdote I wanted to go with until right now. So I'm just going to, I guess, have to sort of you know point randomly at my sort of um, sort of bank of, of COVID stories. Um, so I think that probably uh, for me, um, there was this moment during uh, the, the really bad winter wave, right? This was after everybody had, you know, thought it was all over. Uh, and then it sort of came back roaring with a vengeance. Um, and this was, of course, after the infamous uh, eat out to help out uh, initiative from the first wave, where they basically sort of paid people to eat 
in restaurants, but you could only get the, the, the sort of the, the, the money if you actually ate in the physical restaurant. Um, so this was sort of, it was, it was getting really bad. Uh, and I looked around and I realized that there were people wearing masks in cars. Uh, and this was such a sort of a shock for me because I had remembered, uh, you know, when my, my partner and I started wearing masks back in March, uh, and people would look at us on the street, you know, not, you know, just sort of like, like we were sort of crazy, you know? Uh, and then, um, you know, I remember being in a medical humanities reading group and having a doctor over the summer swearing up and down that the masks couldn't possibly be helpful. Uh, and we're probably actually making it worse. And then, you know, sort of to see that kind of buy-in uh, on on the, the masking at that particular moment. Now, of course, that didn't last, which I think is another part of the story, interestingly. Mm. Um, so there seems like a real, real interesting sort of tension around there and around ideas of vulnerability and risk uh, and what would constitute an effective mitigation strategy. If, if you don't mind me asking, uh, you made that sort of adoption of the mask early on. Did you know something ab about mask as a sort of non-therapeutic intervention with pandemic or did how did you come to that because i was um a little slow myself and i bought some masks online in january and i didn't use them i just sort of kept them they were a, a sort of a psychological prophylactic device that i kept but didn't actually didn't adopt it until uh, many other colleagues had already done so i wonder how you came to that yeah, so I mean, I, I was kind of going on the basis of uh, the idea that the people who have the most experience with coronaviruses would probably have the best mitigation strategies. And so the fact that it was endemic to East Asia and that the uh, East Asian focus was so heavily weighted towards ventilation and airflow and things like that, I just sort of very early on got this idea in my head that it was probably being transmitted through the air rather than through surfaces. Um, and it really seems like that is not really sort of sunk in, even in the UK up till now. I'll see students sort of walking into buildings and sort of very carefully using the hand sanitizer and then avoiding the masks. Um, and, you know, they're still wiping down surfaces. They're still even telling people you know, sort of on, you know, sort of public service announcements I hear on Spotify in the morning when I'm running that you should be, you know, sort of paying attention to surfaces. And, and they have now started talking about making sure there's fresh air. Um, but the sort of the whole ideology of the pandemic uh, seems like it, it, it sort of has, has there's been a lot of sort of national and regional differences in terms of how people are willing to think about that. Shridibesh, let me come to you with the same question, if you wouldn't mind um, sharing a memory that um, sticks in your mind about this period of time. So Jeff and I were both resident in this small semi-rural town of Exeter in the southwest of the United Kingdom. And we had a lot of overlapping experiences of the pandemic, of course, and we are also neighbors of uh, sorts. Um, now, I mean, I'm sure, uh, so let me just uh, probably, I mean, I had to think about which anecdote I wanted to share. And I think what I wanted to talk about is this very compounded and multi-sided experience of the pandemic, especially for uh, academics, or especially those of us in early career in academics, who have our lives very internationally distributed, right? We've got immediate family somewhere, we've got friends somewhere, and we are somewhere else. So the perception of the pandemic, the variable perceptions of risk, uh, the responsibilities and caring duties are always kind of distributed. Um, and a very fragmented experience as uh, humanity as a whole kind of chugs along uh, in this pandemic path. Uh, the memory that stands out for me most prominently involves a super cyclone which hit the Gangetic Delta region of India where most of my family and my partner are resident and where I currently am right now. Um, one of the strongest super cyclones to hit the region, only the fifth since 1582. Um, one of the costliest of cyclonic storms, and I've actually got a screenshot here, if I'm able to share uh, uh, the screen with you. Should be able to. Uh, there's a share function there if you want to use it and Am I able to share the screen? Should be able to, 
if you share, and then it'll ask you which um, if you want to share from a from a tab. There we go. Uh, might just take a second here. Bear with us one second, everyone. We'll yeah, yeah. just. There we are. What an image. So this most prominent memory is when I was monitoring the cyclone as it was hovering over the region. Yeah, so and this was basically the very visual and virtual experience of my um, going through the pandemic when I know that my immediate family is in this region where the eye of the storm is right now. I mean, you can see in the region. Um, so just, you know, like there was this one 12 hour window when all mobile phone signals were closed and we um, eventually lost touch with everybody and not knowing what's going on really. Um, my family are quite better placed in comparison, but there are millions of people who lost their homes, um, close to 5 million people evacuated, um, at least 100 people dead. And it's also one of the costliest cyclones in the region. Um, I was just reading the figures and of course, financial sum is hardly a measure of the quantum of damage in individual and public life for that region. Um, but yeah, I mean, quite an interesting experience, I think, because as a lot of disasters kind of layer over each other, and and of course the pandemic, and this happened in May last year, uh, during the peak of the first wave of the pandemic. And as one would imagine, like how the protocol of physical distancing, mask wearing, etc., would yeah. complicate the work of relief, work of evacuation, and so on. And especially uh, for uh, millions of people who have been rendered homeless uh, for weeks and months following the onslaught of the storm, of course, uh, staying at home and the usual tenants are unavailable. Thank you for sharing sharing that and that experience of being on one continent, worrying about family in another continent, the the breakdown of communications. Um, it's a really, that's a powerful one. I, I just want to remind everybody you're listening to COVID Calls and uh, talking today to Trudy Besh Day and Jeffrey Hughes. And we're going to turn now to um, another facet of our conversation to talk about um, a project that they just finished special issue of the Journal of Legal Anthropology on legal regimes under pandemic conditions. And I'm going to put the link up to that here in just a second. And I tweeted it out. Um, it's a it's a beautiful collection. And um, Jeff, you have an introduction in it. I'm just going to quote one sentence from it. But you, you're, let me just give this quote. You talk about a, a conjecture. You talk about having a conjecture of virus and diverse legal orders which offers rich material for anyone struggling to understand how institutional and normative frameworks operate in various corners of the contemporary world. So this is deeply transnational, deeply comparative, deeply ethnographic in a time in which we can't really do ethnography in the way that we're supposed to be able to do it. Um, I love it. I think it's great and i um, excited to hear you talk about um, first, Jeff, let me start with you, how you came to the idea, um, and, and maybe talk a little bit about some of the conceptual apparatus that you're invoking here. Yeah, well, thank you so much, and I'm glad that you you found it useful and, and generative. I, I, I think that, um, you know, this is a regular aspect of the journal as we have these fora, 
which is, you know, not so much for sort of a standard peer review article, but it's more of a sort of an informal opportunity for scholars to talk about, you know, sort of important uh, current events. So um, obviously, I think that um, when the pandemic arose, I, I felt like it was one of the most exciting opportunities uh, to, uh, you know, sort of do a forum that we've encountered in a while. Of course, if anyone listening uh, has a good idea for a forum, we're always uh, excited to hear about your ideas as well. So you can get in touch with me about that if you don't mind me making that plug. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, so basically, uh, from my perspective, right, as someone uh, who is a sort of a longtime STS or, you know, a real uh, interest in science and technology studies going back to my uh, undergraduate and graduate studies, um, but also, of course, uh, seeing uh, the, the sort of the relationship between uh, science and technology on the one hand and law on the other is really crucial to the way that both of those fields are, are constituted. Uh, the, the pandemic offered, you know, such an exciting opportunity. I mean, obviously, amidst all of the sort of the, the horrific uh, aspects of it uh, to really sort of interrogate, you know, what uh, we could we could sort of make of our contemporary world. And I think that um, the fact that the virus is ostensibly the same thing, right? And yet as it enters all of these different uh, fields, it, it sort of, it's gonna move and behave very differently. And there's gonna be these very interesting looping effects where the way in which it's perceived and the way in which pre-existing frameworks are going to dictate how the virus can be perceived is then going to sort of create different sorts of path dependencies in terms of how societies are going to try and cope with it. It seemed to me that this was a really good opportunity for uh, comparative work uh, and that this, this sort of called for some sort of empirical response from anthropologists, that it was a good opportunity to bring people together from different parts of the world. And then we could start to see how even something as, you know, sort of concrete and uniform as what's effectively, you know, sort of a ball of proteins that are sort of self-replicating uh, can have radically different effects, you know, on different communities based on all of the sort of that cultural and social stuff uh, that makes us uh, so different, but also, of course, defines us as humans. One of the things that is often said is kind of a truism about disaster research is that disasters reveal disasters show. I remember the first time I read that. In fact, I remember exactly where I was the first time I read that. And it's this aha moment for disaster researchers in which they see disasters as mm, revelatory, pulling back the curtain, whatever metaphor you want to use to show social orders and legal orders as they are. And But you point to something else in the introduction to this um, special issue that they also generate new orders. And so in that sense, the the disaster is not inert. It, it's also provocative. And, and I wonder if I could draw you out a little bit on how you see that. Yeah, so I really have to thank Tritabesh here for uh, bringing uh, together this idea of a binding crisis, uh, which I think I was vaguely aware of, but I think Tritabesh was the person who really put this front and center in my mind. Uh, and I think that his excellent uh, ethnography of uh, plastics and waste management in India is, is sort of a really fantastic example Right. Of how, you know, I mean, obviously, this is in some sense, this is the classic, you know, sort of uh, Naomi Klein, who was, of course, drawing on Milton Friedman, you know, sort of never let a good crisis go to waste. Um, but, you know, I think that there's a sort of a less cynical read on this as well. Right. Which is that um, these uh, crises and disasters, they sort of reveal pre-existing vulnerabilities. Uh, and then, I mean, you know, sort of take the, the paradigmatic example of a binding crisis. Right. Which was also, of course, uh epidemiological, which was uh, the cholera epidemic uh, that led to the basically re-engineering of waste management and especially, uh, you know, sort of sewage systems in London in the 19th century. Um, that oftentimes when we, uh, you know, sort of begin to look at the state of our world in, in the aftermath of these uh, sort of terrible events, uh, we realize that we could actually be doing things uh, in, I mean, if not a better way, at least a different way uh, that would have different sorts of problems, um, different sorts of opportunities. Um, and that and that it's precisely in, in these sort of moments of crisis that we often see uh, new uh, sort of orders emerging. And so um, again, right, this is a sort of a, makes this a very rich opportunity for, for anthropological investigation. Trudebesh, let me bring you in on that and maybe you can talk a little bit about the case that you contributed for this uh, special issue. Right. Um, so I basically talk about this ongoing process of 
process of formalization um, in waste, in solid waste management in India. And kind of looking at the emergency rules that were put in place uh, to govern the pandemic, of course, and how the kind of reframes, re-narrativizes, revalues different regimes of work when it comes to picking up plastic waste or treating plastic waste or um, inducting plastic waste in all sorts of uh, networks, processes and, and evaluations. Um, so in a way, yes. Uh, so the central argument is how kind of this pandemic is used as a method to re-intensify that process of formalization in view of all the resistances and competitions that this large-scale um, incineration-based waste management infrastructure faces. Um, in reality, um, it's hardly a case of competition because there are multiple processes in which plastic waste is foraged and it's reintegrated into different uh, processes and networks, right? So on one hand, you have the recycling processes, you have different uh, smaller scale reuse circles. Then of course, there is the larger scale, um, the more, the one which the government is most interested in is kind of large scale induction of plastic and then channelizing them to uh, pretty um, big incineration based waste to energy systems, um, almost like killing to uh, birds with one stone, you kind of have this big waste crisis, uh, this large country with big population, and on the hand, which also have the energy crisis, so then kind of aspirationally um, dealing with both these issues by turning waste into energy, theoretically. Um, and of course, like I've explored this in other works and I kind of touched upon this in the empirical case study, which I presented in this special issue, is how this new regime of incineration kind of marginalizes and dispossesses these more informal networks of recycling, which are also um, um, managed and, I mean, these are enterprised by informal urban poor populations. Um, they're quite efficient and they're also sources of livelihood for a lot of the urban poor. Um, so the pandemic kind of, uh, I mean, in framing the laws, the recycling enterprises and practices of foraging were prohibited and were not deemed essential. Um, and on the other hand, the more formal regime of waste collection and circulation into the incinerators was in fact promoted at its essential labor and performed very visually in the sense that the authorized municipal workers um, almost have this right of passage to public space under lockdown, whereas those who are visibly uh, marked different, that is they're not wearing uniforms or carrying eye cards, um, are basically uh, policed out of the public space, which is also their site of work and source of livelihood. So that's basically the case, kind of how the pandemic um, emerges as this neoliberal method of structuring and formalizing a particular industry, a particular regime of creating value, uh, creating privatized value from a public commodity, essentially. Uh, thank you for that description. And uh, I want to I should just give a shout out to a graduate student who's here at KAIST where I am, Hyuna Kyum, who's also working on a master's thesis about the case of plastic waste during the pandemic here in South Korea. And there's some really fascinating overlaps with, with your story, Trudy Besh, and it's a case where you had a sort of set of legal decisions which had been made quite recently just before the pandemic, and then the pandemic forces a reevaluation of those and an improvisation in that moment and that poor performativity of the state saying this is COVID waste now. So it, it means something different now uh, and, and owning that, and I'm not doing this justice, she'll have to explain it to you and I'll be sure to connect you, but that's really powerful. It seems to be part of the story that you're 
that you're telling as well. Let me follow up, Jeff, and ask you, um, you know, you wrote about Jordan uh, and the case of Jordan in your essay, uh, and there's a lot to it, but maybe I'll just op open the opportunity. And actually, I think uh, reading the plastic waste. Hold that, Jeff. We'll come back right back to you in a second. Trudebesh, go ahead. Sorry, no, um, so I was just saying, I mean, the, the, the plastic waste crisis, of course, um, is the tip of the iceberg plastics under the pandemic. Um, I, I mean, there's a small plug, but it's quite relevant, I think, because um, there's this one short piece that Mike, Michael and I co-authored with um, for Discover Society, the sociological review blog. Um, it basically talks about how the plastic industry kind of re-narrativized uh, the utilitarian value of single-use plastics over reusable and recyclable shopping bags, and how this, how interestingly, the uh, the deployment of single-use devices within the medical setting was kind of cited as a life-saving solution for other spheres of private and public life and how this kind of notion that, well, and of course this um, uh, this data on surface persistence of the coronavirus, which emerged um, in April, in, in, in March, April last year, and how the scientific data was kind of um, spun in a very problematic way to kind of say that, hey, okay, so plastics, um, so the virus persists on plastics. So instead of reusing plastics, we need to have single-use plastics, which are easily disposable. And it's, of course, the abundance of plastic which enables this. Um, yeah. I mean, rather than not using or reusing or generating reuse and recycling infrastructure. So I think, and, and of course, we see uh, a lot of effects of these, uh, these very strategic deployments of fear of contagion and public responsibility right. in the reversal of the plastic bans and the single used uh, policies being reversed on various states in the US, but also in Europe for some time. It's such an important set of observations because uh, early on in the pandemic during the lockdown phase, global sort of lockdown phase, there was a lot of, I think, important um, thinking about the environmental impact of lockdown and but most of that was in terms of power power consumption and in terms of greenhouse gas emission and much less on the waste side of things and so i'm, I'm glad that you're intervening on that side jeff let me let me bring you in and talking about what you observed in in the way that jordan dealt with the the pandemic i know it had impacts in terms of uh, more informal social things around hospitality, but also quite formal efforts that the government went to to provide food, for example. Yeah, so um, the, this, this also is, I guess, very important in terms of why I started to think about a comparative project on uh, legal and state responses to the pandemic, right? So um, like we've said, there were, there were lockdowns in many parts of the world. Jordan being uh, a relatively small kingdom in the Middle East, I think, uh, was um, going to always have its own sort of spin on it. Um, and there were aspects of uh, the, the sort of that, that response that I just were so sort of characteristically Jordanian to me that I thought that they really drew out some of the social and cultural specificities of that uh, particular society and the social settlement in that uh, country. So um, the most, I think, iconic moment for me uh, was when uh, they began their lockdown uh, by, you know, and, and I, I think this was very much in keeping with Jordan's, you know, sort of formation uh, and a lot of the sort of the counterinsurgency logics that often um, are at play in a place like Jordan in terms of just the in urban infrastructure and things like that. So there's a highly militarized response, you know, sort of moving in uh, to urban centers and sort of cutting off, uh, you know, sort of points of access, uh, and then basically sort of setting up checkpoints, uh, which is another sort of very characteristic thing, um, impounding anyone who was driving without a good reason to. Um, and then uh, as, as part of this really sort of intense lockdown that they uh, attempted, um, they had this idea that they would basically provide uh, food and, and very characteristically bread to the entire country. 
Um, so they basically had this idea that they could basically turn the uh, transportation structure backwards, right? And instead of sort of bringing people in to sort of earn their daily bread, they could basically sort of have all of the buses and taxis basically ferrying bread, you know, to the people, right? So the government, in a certain sense, uh, was playing into sort of basically decades of uh, what uh, one of my colleagues, Martinez, has called the politics of bread in Jordan, right? Uh, oftentimes, uh, political legitimacy uh, and social disorder is uh, articulated in the idiom of bread. And the regime's ability to provide literal bread to its citizens is one of the main um, you know, sort of uh, basis for its legitimacy. Um, and if you read the work of my, my colleague Martinez, you can read all about the sort of uh, labyrinthine system of subsidies and uh, sort of state support that they use to make it so that you can basically buy a kilo of bread for, you know, about 20 pence or about 20 cents uh, on the kilo. Uh, and uh, so it was, I mean, this, of course, uh, turned out to be a little bit uh, grandiose and they weren't actually able to sort of do this in practice. People crowded around the streets, you know, sort of major uh, sort of thoroughfares because they didn't trust the, the government to get to their particular house. Um, but it, it sort of, to me, it was indicative of a particular kind of state imaginary, uh, which very much runs counter to our idea of uh, what sort of the neoliberal consensus would suggest. Uh, and it pointed to the fact that maybe beneath the surface of uh, what we might call the Washington consensus, uh, that there are sort of alternative state imaginaries uh, that persist uh, and that the pandemic was actually bringing to the surface uh, ideas about the role of the state and society that had previously laid rather dormant. I would just to follow up on that. How did the media cover that? What was the framing around this idea that because the way you the way you suggested is quite provocative. It's like you you usually work for your daily bread, but now we we need you to stay. Your work is to stay home for your daily bread. Uh, but in, in either scenario, the state is playing a formative role. But in this one, it's that you need to be at home to receive the bread. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I thought that was a very interesting uh, aspect of it. I mean, I think that it was it was somewhat articulated uh, around work. But I also think very interestingly uh, that um, it wasn't necessarily conditioned on uh, work in that same way. So I think that there is uh, a longstanding idea, and I think this maybe also plays into notions of hospitality and also the notion of the monarchy itself as a sort of a, a royal house and Jordan itself as basically a house in which the, the sort of the, the king has a sort of a paternalistic role. Uh, that, uh, you know, sort of your ability to uh, get your daily bread is necessarily predicated on uh, your status as a worker, uh, but rather as a sort of a, an obedient son of the nation, perhaps, would be how I would maybe put it a little bit more, right? So I think it was maybe more conditioned on compliance uh, than it was on labor, per se, which I think says a lot also about how the regime uh, perceives itself and also how... Uh, basically Jordanian citizens through decades of political struggle, often uh, quite contentious, have basically forced the regime uh, to make certain basic concessions about um, its responsibilities to its populations. These don't, aren't necessarily articulated uh, in the idiom of democratic rights or representation, uh, but rather in a much more concrete idiom of you know, what we might call uh, the politics of the belly. I, I noted in today's statistics, um, and I'd be curious to know what you Think about health reporting in Jordan. Ten thousand seven hundred and three deaths reported as of now uh, in Jordan. And so, I guess my question there is: is first of all about how health reporting works in the in the country, and how comfortable you are with those numbers. And I guess following up on that, have there been moments of crisis, maybe exemplified by certain incidents that have caught people's attention throughout this pandemic in Jordan? Yeah, yeah. So, so there have been two waves, um, and I, I think in general Jordan had um, a, a very quick response, uh, and they they pursued a suppression uh, strategy at first, what my friends called the the Chinese model, Nilamasini, as they said. Uh, and so it was uh, pretty militarized. Again, that had this sort of counterinsurgency logic to it, um, and they were able to basically sort of not really have a wave until November, uh, which you know was uh, I guess not bad for a. a relatively poor and small country. Um, now, in terms of how much we can trust those death figures, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I generally think that the uh, Jordanian medical profession uh, is is um, very, very competent. Um, they export doctors all around the region, all around the world, in fact. Um, they're definitely uh, highly skilled, highly trained. I've gotten incredible medical care in Jordan. Um, so I would think that if it was up to uh, the medical professionals, I would trust those numbers completely. Um, 
there might be some fudging, of course. I have no idea. I don't have any reason to believe that. One of the other things, of course, that might explain Jordan's uh, relative success, other than uh, its quick response uh, and um, um, you know, sort of the, the sort of the competence of the medical profession in general, is the fact that it's such a young country. So the median age. Um, this might have changed a little bit, but at least um, in, in recent years, the median age is 27, right? Um, and this is just reflects an incredibly high birth rate, right? So when we talk about a country of, say, maybe 7 million people, uh, we're talking about uh, the vast majority of those people uh, being relatively young, right? And a very small number of people who are elderly, right? So I think that part of the reason why uh, Jordan may have dodged a bullet over and above any sort of competence on the part of um, the uh, professional class of the country. Uh, it would have to do with a small population. Now, that's not to say that there haven't been uh, some some moments of crisis and some uh, moments when the regime's uh, credibility was actually deeply called into question uh, by its pandemic response. And I think that probably the most um, sort of uh, spectacular aspect of this, which I think even reached the Western media because it was such a big blow up, um, and I don't think people quite understand how this incident began, right? But um, I think some people may have heard of uh, how there was a coup attempt uh, or an alleged coup attempt, I should say, in Jordan uh, by one of the country's princes. Um, and a lot of this actually probably dates back to the Trump administration. And it's possible that he was in, in some sort of contact with uh, the Trump administration that he should not have been in. Uh, but the in, in immediate precipitating event uh, was that there was a hospital uh, in the country, which was very new. It had been basically built by, I, I believe, USAID had helped. And uh, so it had all the latest equipment. Um, it was a very nice facility. And uh, there was basically no reason why there should be any problems. Uh, but due to uh, alleged incompetence and corruption on the part of the hospital staff, they basically ran out of oxygen. Uh, and I believe seven people died as a result of this loss of oxygen. So this was a major uh, scandal, of course. Uh, the families were outraged. There were protests. Um, they, of course, held the uh, the hospital management personally responsible, uh, and the hospital management was put on trial, in fact. Um, but uh, in the aftermath of this event, and amidst all this outrage, uh, this prince went to meet with the grieving families, um, and this was seen as a, as a sort of a real challenge to the legitimacy of the king, um, because this was, of course, in March. This was their second lockdown, uh, second wave, uh, and I think there was a lot of uh, anger and frustration, and uh, to have that sort of a major failure was seen as a, as a big scandal. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today to Jeffrey Hughes and Trudy Bechet. I just want a, a question to both of you, um, and Jeff, I'm going to stay with you on this, and then Trudy Bechet, let me bring you in. Um, maybe just working back uh, and generalizing a little bit about some of these, which often in disaster, they're sort of like rules changes or workarounds. They're improvised. And maybe they are not intended by policymakers. Maybe they're not even put in place by policymakers. They're enabled through certain emergency legislation. That's often the case in the United States. But which ones will stick? And, and I guess I'm asking you that question both in an empirical way, maybe in the case of Jordan or in India, but also maybe in a more theoretical, like how do we theorize that? Is there a way to predict? Will they be changes in the health sector or the waste sector, what we've just been talking about, um, or other uh, kinds of new legal orders that can be brought in as a as a function of dealing with the pandemic. So I'm curious to get your take on that, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, I have to say I've I, I I've been a little bit surprised by uh, the sort of and this is like, maybe this might be a little bit UK specific, but the tenacity with which people want to quote unquote you know return to normal, right? So there's been right. this sort of very interesting, I think almost denialism. Uh, in the aftermath of, of the relaxing of restrictions to basically just sort of get rid of everything. And especially, it's, I think there's something about visual reminders of this kind of traumatic time uh, that have been especially sort of targeted. So for instance, I, I've had people accost me for wearing a mask uh, and, and sort of ask why I'm doing that, right? And sort of, a, it, it's, well, what, why do you care, right? It's, it's my business, right? Um, but, you know, I think that um, maybe there's going to be more subtle ways in which, uh, you know, the, the, the world is not going to go back to quote unquote normal. And I mean, again, I don't want to get in the pro prognostication business. I do think um, that one of the more interesting aspects of uh, COVID, which uh, I haven't necessarily seen so discussed, is how it just makes uh, the movement of people and commodities more sticky, I guess, in a sense. 
Um, and I guess you might have you might have uh, heard about the the current problems with sort of uh, labor shortages leading to problems with supply chains in the United Kingdom. Um, but I think that this may uh, may be one of the areas in which we see uh, a more permanent shift, which is just that uh, the sort of the, the the sort of the movement of goods and, and services is not necessarily uh, going to return to pre-pandemic levels. I think that there's obviously a lot of motivation on the part of industry to sort of do that. Um, but I do wonder if there's going to be uh, a reassessment of globalization in the aftermath of all of this um, that's not just going to go away so easily. And I think that, that may very well be underwritten by the fact that it's more subtle, it's less obvious. Um, there are fewer constituencies uh, that that mm. can basically exert pressure over it. Although, of course, um, you know, to the degree that, that industry does depend on uh, these just-in-time supply chains, obviously they have a big incentive to push back hard against this. Um, but I also think that there may be ways in which um, the sort of the, the reassertion of uh, you know, basically the nation state in general and state power in particular uh, may have some staying power. But I mean, again, right, I'm, I shouldn't be in the pro prognostication business, but that is one area uh, where I don't see the rush back to normal as, as being so uh, effortless. And it does seem like there's more uh, friction there in terms of, of sort of undoing changes that have come in with the, the, the pandemic. It's really interesting. Historians shouldn't be in the future telling business either. But let me go ahead and say that um, in, in, I've been thinking about the, these logistics issues, too. And I think that to the extent that we might see um, something that looks like new laws or rules, they will be driven by the private sector because so much of you know, the global supply chain is, is it may adhere to certain national rules and laws, but so much of it is governed actually by private governance and inter-industry organizations and private rule setting and regulation setting, that that may be where we would look um, for some of the more profound changes coming out of the pandemic. I'm just thinking about the vaccine industry as one example. Certainly the paper industry would be another and the food industry might be a third. Trudy Besh, let me bring you back in. We've got a lot on the table here, but anything that you wanted to, to react to what we've been talking about or specifically this issue of, of how sticky maybe some of these laws or rules or changes might be in India coming out of the pandemic? Um, yeah, I mean, I would probably uh, take, uh, I mean, probably just link back to this notion of binding crisis. And I think the pandemic um, um, almost forces us to think um, more system more systemically probably think more about networks and associations and broader connections uh, that provoke or deny certain changes um, let me be speculative um, the pandemic took trump out of power um, and in the sense that how uh, the, there's this is multiple um, crisis that generates in its wake, um, no, not just a matter of public health, but also with economy. Um, I mean, I know for sure that the Indian economy is kind of going through a bad patch right now. Of course, things will look up. That's because it has really been through a very lean patch and things can only look better. But then um, we are, I mean, speaking to neighbors, relatives and my parents, who have been here and you know experienced this? Uh, I mean, there is rising inflation and there is unemployment, um, and of course, um, uh, and I think the the, the stickiness of things that Jeff just mentioned, the persistence of material remains, for example, plastics. It just, um, sh yeah, I mean, it, it it kind of is a visual reminder of all the ecological damages and not just economic um, um, challenges that we face. And probably this could be a moment to reevaluate uh, political loyalties and probably has something interesting for um, changes for politics and new kinds of societies uh, and communities of solidarity to emerge. Um, and I see that for sure in in academia, for example, uh, as you introduced, I'm in the final year of my PhD and kind of this sudden stoppage of all kinds of, you know, face-to-face -face scholarly social events. Um, 
was a challenge, but then it also inspired us to seek community elsewhere, online, for example. So, and I'm incredibly grateful for those. I'm sure all of us are. So yeah, I guess uh, to speculate and to look forward to hopefully more optimistic ways um, sharing ideas and coming together. Let me stay with you on that, Tridipesh, because as you've said in the last year of your of your PhD, and and I've talked with so many researchers who are either in that position like you are, or they've just started a new project, and the pandemic intervenes, and they've had to adapt their their methods. And you know, it's one thing for a it's hard enough for historians to adapt their methods. Not everybody thinks every archive has been fully digitized. Let me assure you, they have not been. But still, if we're not relying on ethnography or going into the field, uh, there's a lot of work that can be done. And I despair for what anthropologists have been through in trying to keep up with ongoing sites, with trust networks that they work very hard to build. And then you have to adapt everything online. So I guess... Trita Besh, I don't know if you want to talk personally about how you had to adapt your method or more generally how you see you, yourself and colleagues doing digital ethnography, basically. What has it meant to you? For me, uh, personally, for my research, my uh, so-called field work of field work was already over um, much before the pandemic started and was already writing up uh, when the pandemic started. But but I've, of course, seen, um, I've had to fundamentally um, change their projects because, of course, uh, conceptual work um, is linked fundamentally to how we access data in more ethnographic research, um, in more ethnographic forms of producing knowledge. Um, I think, let me probably uh, also, um, invite some reflection from Jeff, because I know that has um, thought about and has spoken and written elsewhere about connections with the fields. Probably he will also be interested in saying something about this. But personally, for me, um, um, WhatsApp phone um, with a lot of my uh, interlocutors and participants has been um, quite vital, not uh, necessarily for data collection, but essentially as a form of keeping in touch and finding out how they're doing, if I can support in any way. So, yeah, I mean, so more virtual forms of ongoing contact and uh, replenishing trust networks for me. Jeff, let me bring you in on that kind of a final question or rumination from you, if you wouldn't mind anything around that sort of your own projects just finished, new ones started and how you see ethnography changing right now. Yeah. So, I, I mean, ironically enough, prior to the pandemic, I was uh, planning a collaboration about what we called staying tuned and the kind of the changing nature of the ethnographic field. So this might be a good example of the pandemic as a binding crisis. And we actually recently published that in the journal Social Analysis, if anyone would like to read about that. And it was a series of, again, sort of uh, different ethnographers from around the world discussing uh, you know, how, they're, how they're having to rethink the relationship between digital ethnography and what we used to quaintly refer to as ethnography in the real world. Um, and I think that that breakdown between uh, the digital and the non-digital is something that was happening prior to the pandemic, but has been greatly uh, accelerated by the pandemic. Now, what this actually means, of course, I think is it um, it's forcing a reckoning about how ethnographers gain their authority from, uh, as uh, has been theorized somewhat, I mean, not very poetically, this idea of quote unquote being there, right? But where is there now, right? You know, and there's a sense in which I think for a lot of younger anthropologists, they're not going to get that uh, initiatory rite of passage experience, you know, of sort of going out to the quote unquote field and having these experiences in this liminal state and then coming back and being slotted into the category of a professional anthropologist or ethnographer, or sociologist or whatever. Um, now, at the same time, I don't necessarily think that this means that their work is gonna be any less rigorous or any less better. And in fact, I think in some ways there are opportunities presented by the pandemic and the changing nature of communication. Um, so one thing that I've been very in interested in prior to the pandemic is how 
uh, the people that anthropologists work with are increasingly resembling uh, anthropologists insofar as they often uh, are involved in their own projects of self-formation through various sorts of engagement with different publics and the attempt to sort of curate uh, some sort of uh, uh, personal professional identity, but in relationship to different communities, right? Um, and so in this sense, um, you know, the pandemic has actually, I think, uh, facilitated my relationships uh, with people uh, in Jordan in some very interesting ways. I mean, for one thing, people have just been very bored, right? And so uh, when people are bored, they're more free for Skype calls, their whole sort of orientation shifts, right? And so on the one hand, um, it's now actually quite easy for me to keep up with what's going on in Jordan without actually having to go anywhere and do anything. Uh, the flip side of this is something that I'd been very frustrated with uh, prior to the pandemic, uh, which is that I used to go to relatively rural areas and people were just, uh, they had nothing better to do than to talk to me, right? Because there wasn't anything else. And then they got their smartphones. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, there's a weird foreigner, but I have a million weird foreigners in my phone. What makes this weird foreigner particularly <laughs> interesting, right? Um, and so this made me kind of despair for the future of ethnography in, in certain ways. Um, but I, I, I think that we're just going to have to, you know, kind of roll with it. We're going to have to rethink what we actually mean by the field, what we mean by participation, um, and that this is going to uh, ultimately just be something that uh, we have to sort of, uh, you know, sort of innovate our way out of, you know. And I think that, again, you know, sort of maybe thinking about this as a binding crisis and thinking about the changing norms around uh, interaction and especially interaction on digital platforms uh, has a lot of opportunities as well as the obvious drawbacks that have been brought about by uh, the limitations on face-to-face -face interaction, problems with shared commensality. Uh, and increasingly, I think, and this is something, again, I think Shredebesh has, has really sensitized me to, the idea of the human body itself as a vector uh, in the absence of, uh, you know, sort of the, the virus itself being visible or even a lot of societal agreement on how it actually spreads. Just a quick, we're out of time. I just want a quick follow up on that, which is around the sort of ethical considerations, um, which I know must be part of training for any graduate student preparing to go into the field where the where is a place that you can point to on a map. Um, but what do you see emerging, or maybe it had already emerged and it just not as many researchers were engaged with it, but in terms of um, what IRB institutional review boards are demanding or what, you know, sort of code of ethics for anthropologists working at a distance, what have they brought to bear in coping with this digital distance that COVID has created? Yeah. So in this, in this, um, in this piece, in the introduction, I talk about this pre pandemic experience of being memed as a, as a sort of a Zionized spy of the American, whatever, whatever, with, uh, one of my interlocutors and the way in which, uh, I received information of this via a WhatsApp message from my house in Exeter. So this kind of breakdown of identities and the ability to separate out what happens in the field from what happens at home and the, uh, the sort of the concerning ability of information to circulate between uh, you know, sort of the academy and our field sites, I think, is already uh, forcing us to rethink, uh, you know, ethics uh, prior to all of this, right? So there's a way in which it used to be people could tell their darkest secrets to an anthropologist, and they would effectively stay far away. But that's just not, not going to be possible anymore. So we have to rethink anonymity. We have to rethink uh, informed consent, because oftentimes people are already themselves, in a certain sense, public figures or micro-celebrities at the very least, uh, but they may not understand how their behavior and opinions and, and sort of thoughts are going to be recontextualized somewhat radically if they are incorporated into social scientific research, even though they often may think that they understand the full risks. Um, so yeah, I definitely think that that's something that was uh, already going to be an issue pre-pandemic. Uh, and uh, the pandemic, of course, is only going to exacerbate these, these really troubling ethical quandaries that we all have. Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can usually catch COVID Calls live at 6 p.m. Eastern Time weekdays. This is a special COVID Calls, which we had at 5.30 p.m. Korea time. And I just want to let you know the next COVID Calls episode will be at 5 p.m. Eastern Time Wednesday, which is less than 12 hours from now. Um, so we've got a, a lot of time zones happening today on COVID calls, and my next discussion will be on COVID in North Korea. So please do join me for that 5 p.m. Eastern time Wednesday. Let me thank my guests, Trudy Day and Jeffrey Hughes. This has been one of those conversations where it's like generated a thousand ideas have sort of spun out of it and a lot of things to follow up on, and I hope we'll keep in contact. Thanks for both of you for the work you're doing, the time you took in explaining it here today, and stay healthy. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. Take care.
Okay, everyone, we'll see you next time on COVID Calls.